Hello, welcome to the Amusia Story Podcast. We took a week off last week, but are glad to be back now to complete the second half of the charted out 24 episode sequence that we prospected out a few months ago. We've done 12 of them, and today's is the 13th. This is a story called The Alchemist that I have circled around and around about for a couple of months, reading different books about it. And so it's a historical, it's set in the early years of the 18th century in Germany or the Holy Roman Empire as it was then known and so I read and thought a lot about it most of the names places and etc are real historical figures here and or plausible ones with uh, notable exceptions it's definitely a work of fiction Um, but I'll say no more than that notes about the story as always can be found at our podcast blog at amusia.org and etc etc whatever else you're supposed to say in a podcast please review us on itunes i think that's one of the requirements and here's the story with shaki's wonderful mandolin work Aegon hartvig was on the run dozens of hard highway miles from home washed up on the margin of a traveling fair he had no permit to participate and no money to obtain one What Hartwig had was a canvas tent, a hastily painted sign, and a trunk's worth of apparatus he had been able to grab from his alchemical laboratory before fleeing. With these things, he hoped to make a few coins outside this fair, fast, before being shut down. Welcome all, and please take a seat, he coaxed, keeping the patter going as he had seen other traveling charlatans do. For a mere groschen each, I shall reveal to you the mystical and ancient secrets of the alchemists. Jeberus, Paracelsus, Christian Rosenkreutz. These men have cultivated that substance known as the Philosopher's Stone, which can raise a base metal, such as this very hunk of lead, into purest gold. Hartwig was holding their attention, the eight or ten people he had cajoled into his tent, which was a sorely needed relief. They were seating themselves on his trunk, on the lone stool he could offer, on the damp grass. It was April. Outside the tent, the sunset was coming on above a light smattering of unseasonably chill rain. It was 1705, and at age 30 now, Hartwig saw the new century yawning open before him as only so much black murk. He had been warned by the Elector of Bavaria, in so many words, that if he had remained home in Nuremberg, he could expect to wake up some morning soon, dead. In retrospect, maybe that would have been for the best. I have kept this small oven fired for the past few hours so that it will now give off a steady heat. You'll see that here I have... He hesitated. I have uh, some powdered sulfur. His concentration was cracked. The tent flap had admitted a new spectator. A little man, scarcely more than three feet in height, dressed in robes and ruffles, which did little to conceal the flipper-like appendages in which his diminutive arms terminated, nor his clear absence of legs. This was, of course, Matthias Buchinger, born without hands or feet, as he perpetually advertised himself, carried to these grounds outside the fair where Hartwig had set up shop. Matthias Buchinger was one of the fair's greatest attractions. From his mycography, or microscopic writing, to cup and ball ledger domain, the deformed but preternaturally talented little man never failed to astonish. In the handful of years he had been performing, Buchinger had become one of the best-known men in the Holy Roman Empire. The greatest German living, some even called him. Had this luminary of the fair come to tell Hartwig to leave? Hartwig, still arrested in his speech, 
watched the woman who had carried in Bookinger now set him to rest on a pillow she laid beneath him on the grass. So the little man was here not to stop him, but to see him perform? Was that better? Uh, This bit of sulfur, he went on, the male, the solar element, combined with its opposite element in the form of quicksilver, will cause, in the crucible of their chemical marriage, this lead to turn to gold. First, true to the showman's form, he would have his audience examine the small crucible in his palm. As if to sharpen the ignominy of what came next, it was a mustachioed, half-soused tiller who said, What's this? and flicked a tab he found near the crucible's base. Out of the empty vessel tumbled a breath of black powder and a small chunk of gold. This show was over. No Groshen would be clinking in Hartwig's pot. Denouncing him as a humbug and worse, his audience stomped out into the night in search of some better way to waste their coins. Slumping to that one stool he owned, Hartwig pressed his face into his palms and veritably whimpered. Why on earth did I leave Nuremberg? I could have been peacefully strangled in my sleep by some henchman of the Elector. A more dignified way by far to pass the time than this. When he looked up from his hands, he started. The little man was still upon his pillow, regarding him tranquilly, and apparently in no mood to leave, as the others had done. Uh, Do you need any assistance? Hartwig ventured. If I can perhaps help this lady who has uh, accompanied you here to carry you back to your own camp? Bookinger smiled. You certainly may be of some assistance, but not in that way. Would you mind showing me this trick crucible of yours? Hartfig fetched up the thing from the ground and carried it over to the little man, who grasped it with surprising adroitness between his two incomplete arms, and turned it over, examining. You designed this yourself? Well, yes, naturally. Outstanding. Outstanding? Bah! I ran off a roomful of rabble with this travesty of a trinket. Bookinger nodded. Y- yes, you failed. As a magician and as a showman... But you've succeeded wonderfully as a craftsman. This catch is well concealed, if in the hands of the right magician. The mechanism for flipping over the false bottom of the crucible is ingenious. I can see just how well it would work. Your sulfur and mercury and the lead scooped safely into your false bottom, while the gold and the flash powder are swept out of that same chamber, up into the bowl of the crucible, and whoosh! A burst of flame, and you've got nothing left over but your scrap of pure gold to show the room. Brilliant! That's all good and well enough, Hartwig stammered. But it earned me no dinner tonight. Hmm. Eh, that's where you're wrong, the little man smiled. Would you care to sup with me tonight? Over soup and sausages and black bread, they discussed a kaleidoscope of fascinating matters the new knowledge of the world that was opening up around them in the minds of men. They spoke of Descartes' physics of extended substance, remarked upon the findings of the extraordinary polymath Jesuit Athenaeus Kircher. There was a new cabalistic mathematics circulating, known as calculus, similar to theories of the obscure Otto von Hohensteigen in the days of the Thirty Years' War, but rediscovered independently by Gottfried Wilhelm von Leibniz of Hanover, and plagiarized by an Englishman by the name of uh, Newton. In The strange sigils of this mathematics lay, apparently, proof of Kepler's theories. But more important than any of this, after all the small talk, Hartwig was stunned and flattered to learn Matthias Bookinger was an admirer of his work, namely the elaborate inking he incorporated into the astrological charts he had spent so many years of his career preparing for his patrons. And, Bookinger added, you've got no small reputation either in your private explorations of alchemy. 
I know well the difference between the arts you study and the show version of it you attempted tonight. Fooling men in the name of the truth. Well, let us learn a little from each other about how to fool them all better. Bookinger was so encouraging, so charming, that Bartfig was instantly disarmed. Soon he found himself telling all regarding his recent misadventures. Yes, the rumors were true. Hartwig's greatest patron, Teresa Cunegunda Sobieska, daughter of the King of Poland and wife of Maximilian II Emmanuel, Elector of Bavaria, had grown close to him. Extremely close. The horoscope castings and the seance work they had performed together became intimate indeed in the year and more since her husband had ridden off to join the French in opposing Maximilian's very own Habsburg masters in the War of Spanish Succession. This was a gambit Maximilian had undertaken to raise his own station, possibly to that of the throne of Spain. But the disaster months before at Blenheim, 30,000 men killed in the field, thousands more deserting, had sent Max and his sons reeling off into the Spanish Netherlands to lick their wounds. They were not welcome in their own home, not if you're opposing the Holy Roman Emperor. Maximilian clearly had his own troubles and could hardly attend to his wife. But when Hartwig had received a letter the month prior, telling him to quit all connection with Teresa and to flee Nuremberg immediately at risk of his own life. He had no reason not to take this threat seriously. Many were still loyal to Maximilian and the Palatinate, and nobles too often had a way of negotiating themselves out of low points like these anyway, and back into their seats of power. Thus it was that Hartwig had become homeless. Thus, the botched effort to win some pennies from the general public tonight. Matthias Buchinger, despite his singular physical form, or somehow because of it, was a consummate seducer himself. He commiserated with his new friend, this unemployed astrologer. He suggested they both get some sleep and work the next day together on perfecting a device which could help the little man apply his inexact limbs to the playing of a dulcimer. A month later, they had traveled the fair circuit through Stuttgart, Ulm, Augsburg, and Munich, and were camped performing outside Ingolstadt. Alongside the other acts of fire-eating, simple sleight of hand, and the sprawl of common goods for sale, a singular presence like Buchinger's, half-freak, half-prodigy, made him indisputable star of the traveling show. Buchinger had taken in Hartwig at a moment of near-certain starvation. In grateful exchange, Hartwig discovered reserves of ingenuity he had not quite realized he'd mastered in his years of alchemical research, placing traps, springs, wires, and levers to communicate impulse in so many ways to multiply the subtle movements of Buchinger's blunt flipper arms. These things were perfectly within Hartwig's imagination to design. The little man's playing of a variety of stringed and blown instruments improved noticeably, and his crowd showed it. Buchinger had lately been working on his ability to execute flawless games of ten pins, stipulating unlikely shots and making them. In this, as well as with music, Hartwig helped him create mechanisms to expand the appearance of his already considerable skill. Hartwig also assisted Buchinger in drafting some of his micrographic works, preparing the larger whirls and loops of drawings that Buchinger could fill in afterward. The sale of this draftsmanship often netted the little man more than the proceeds of his live shows. In their tour, they had already been entertained in electors' courts, where Hartwig found extra work drawing up horoscopes. Fine wine was drunk and fine food gobbled, let alone other adventures, such as a precarious middle-of-the-night descent of a vine-threaded trellis adjoining a boudoir window, which left Hartwig swearing afterward to keep a period of celibacy. But in all this, something remained missing. Hartwig 
hated the travel and uncertainty, and longed for the fixed home he'd had in Nuremberg. Meanwhile, Bookinger was forming plans for an incursion into England with the goal of performing before George I. This constant traveling somehow made the longing Hartwig felt for the wife who died in childbirth eight long years before only keener than ever. And on top of all else, there was the work itself. Uh, no longer was he perhaps dithering away his days on noble yet trivial horoscope making and applying his nights to the profound search for the Philosopher's Stone. Instead, he spent the days tending to the camp and nights duping peasants into believing he was transforming lead to gold when he was not. So it struck Hartwig's unhappy moods in a propitious way when a man approached him after his performance at Ingolstadt. You're more than a prestidigitator, the man observed. I'm a practitioner of the magical arts, Hartwig replied, a little guardedly, a little formulaically. He wasn't sure what this man had in mind. Your show is rubbish, tricks to fool the unenlightened, but I see your stage talk reveals something else. In fact, it reveals far too much of something else. You reference the chemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. I catch your allusions to the Book of the Sacred Magic of Abramel and the Mage, the Zohar, the scrying techniques of Dr. John Dee and Sir Edward Kelly. It, it goes on. These things are not among the studies of a man looking for a few coins in a tent show. Well, sir, I don't know who you are, but I have a long history of study in the occult arts, and what you see me do beneath this tent is only a small part of my work. It should be no part of it. I would like to introduce you to some friends of mine. You may find the experience illuminating. So it was that a few nights later, Hartwig found himself blindfolded, a noose slung around his neck, as he was beset and murdered, symbolically, by the three ruffians Jubila, Jubilo, and Jubilum. In other words, he was carried through the initiation into Ingolstadt's lodge of Scottish Rite Freemasonry. This man he had met at the fair, now Hartwig's sponsor into the organization, a Herr Klebold, had come to learn a great deal about his new alchemist friend in those few days. Klebold was determined that Hartwig be with his Masonic brothers in Ingolstadt, with the opportunity to petition for a teaching role at the Jesuit University. There's a great awakening of illumination happening here, Klebold told him. The generations of illuminated men rising up from this place will create a movement to remake the world. An Illuminati. What I propose to you is that you leave your carnival and join that gathering movement. This was something Hartford could hardly refuse. Nonetheless, he dreaded presenting himself to the little man who'd done so much for him and explaining, even as they were pulling up stakes to move on to the next city, that he'd be staying behind. Bookinger, not for the first time, astonished Hartford. So you, what you're telling me is just that you've met Claybold. How did you know that I... How did I know? I asked him to introduce himself to you. I made some inquiries and got his name. Hartwig, we, we've had a wonderful few months together, and I'm much the richer for all the inventions we have made for my show. But to make it across the channel to England, I must travel light. Also, he winked, I know a little about the societies and movements here in Ingolstadt. Struck me you might be happier here. On top of all that, Bookinger added, You need to get back to your books. You're really terrible at sleight of hand.
Okay, so there you got a welter of references to mysticism that were current as of 1705. And stuff probably no one ever in their lifetimes expected to hear about the Elector of Bavaria off-fighting in the War of Spanish Succession. But hey, it's all real, and the references will be at amusia.org at our podcast blog. One thing about doing a story, a brief story, every week for 24 or 25 weeks is that each one feels uh, like it's allowed to be a bit of a draft. This seems like a novel excerpt, actually. So maybe there will be some revisiting of it. But for now, we know that this hapless alchemist who was turned out of his uh, regular practice in his hometown of Nuremberg ended up through the helpful intercession of a very talented uh, legless dwarf. He turned out to be one of the progenitor founding members decades in advance of the Bavarian Illuminati, which uh, actually was founded in Ingolstadt in 1776, so many decades after this story is set. But there were plenty of secret societies in the air in Bavaria in the decades before 1776, and that's all I got. Have a good week.